Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Candle. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is retired Fire Chief Mark Emery. Mark started his career in the fire service in 1980, which included a position as Chief of Training at Woodenville Fire in Washington State. He has a bachelor's in education from California State University at Long Beach and is also an EFO graduate of the National Fire Academy. He is the developer of the Integrated Tactical Accountability System, or ITAC, which teaches the four components of contemporary incident management, and he has also been a frequent contributor to Firehouse Magazine. In 2013, he received the George D. Post Instructor of the Year Award issued by ISFSI and Fire Engineering. Mark travels the country and the world teaching ITAC and his curriculum for the essentials of honorable leadership and the quest for honorable success. Inside today's episode, leading yourself comes first, the essentials of honorable leadership, why aggressive strategy is more difficult than aggressive tactics, the intelligent and safe fireground, and how to actually perform a risk assessment. Let's get curious and dive in. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Rob. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to contribute here. Yeah, I'm pleased to have you here today. And I'd like to just get started with your personal motto. You know, in looking into doing a little research for the podcast, I noticed that you had a personal motto. And uh, I wondered if you could tell us about <laughs> why, why, why have a personal motto? What has it led you? What, what's important to you about that, that you want, you want that to be part of what people see when they, when they uh, look to you? And then tell us what it is and what it means to you, please. Well, the, the motto is, it's what you learn after you know it all that's important. And I first heard that in the mid-1970s. I was working at Knott's Berry Farm in California. And I, at the time, also going to school, Cal, California State University in Long Beach. And I was reading a book by John Wooden, or about John Wooden at the time. Yeah, he hadn't written his own yet. And I, that quote was in her, and I said, "Man, that's a that's a pretty, pretty cool quote." Except he said, "It's what you learn after you know it all that counts." I just changed it counts to important. And then fast forward uh, into the fire service, and me and a bunch of uh, rebel training officers back in the eighties, formed late eighties, formed a an organization. Uh, I don't know if you remember called the Training Guys. Yeah, and it was myself, Stuart Rose, who was chief of training in Seattle, and 
a couple other guys and we'd uh, instead of paying, you know, for airfare, per diem, hotel, sending people to go see John Mittendorf, Alan Brunacini, and uh, uh, Francis Brannigan, we we brought them in to a hospital auditorium in Kirkland that held 150 people, and we'd charge just a small fee and include lunch. And because uh, in our, one of our on the back of our T-shirts, it said, "It's what you learn after you know it all that's important." And uh, we used to brag that uh, uh, there's there's no golf tournament. <laughs> kind of a little dig to the fire chief. <laughs> <laughs> well, why rebel? Why do you use the word rebel to describe the uh, your training group? Your 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 rebel. Well, because we were officers. doing we were doing seminars and workshops uh, that that weren't based on making a profit or wasn't a chief's organization, mm. um, which is why we said no golf tournaments. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was just all about an opportunity to not have to travel a great distance and have a mm. hotel and airfare and see some of the country's uh, best, best minds. How logistically uh, challenging was that for you to bring those guys together and, and, uh, bring in those big name speakers? Um, it got easier as we went the first couple mm. of times it, it was just challenging because we were shooting from the hip. We didn't know what things we were supposed to do. So we, um, you know, we treated the instructors really well, got them, if they were bringing their spouse, got them in a bed and breakfast, uh, overlooking the water in Kirkland or someplace. So we really treated mm. them royally. So they uh, had a great experience coming out here. And man, we had, we had to have the, the Kirkland fire chief approve, uh, going beyond the occupancy load of the auditorium and put chairs in the aisles because we had so mm. many people signing up for this. And then we had people from outside Washington state coming and Then we got shut down by the Washington fire chiefs. <laughs> I was going to ask you, how long did you sustain it? What happened to it? Um, it went on for, I think the first one was in 88 and I think it ended around 92 or 93. Mm-hmm. And it was oddly, we we scheduled Brunacini and Brannigan and a guy from Toronto uh, named David Roth, uh, who came. And we did that one in Shoreline, at the, in Shoreline, Washington. Mm-hmm. And the, the Chiefs had a conference going on at the same time, and they were not happy because they were feeling we were skimming mm-hmm. attendees off from their conference. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, the first to be told that you won't do that anymore was uh, Stuart Rose when Claude Harris in Seattle said, you'll, you'll stop. <laughs> You're not doing that anymore. <laughs> that quote from John Wooden is one that I've read as well. And it, what impressed me was just somebody so accomplished, you know, um, getting to a place, maintaining a place of humility about, about no matter what level of excellence you've achieved, you have more to learn. And that, um, yeah, that, that, that your learning never stops. He has, a, he has another quote I really like, and it's when you're done learning, you're done. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, so what, do, what do you mean when you say that every firefighter must be able to lead themselves before they supervise others? Well, I think I mentioned to you, I'm working on, uh, a book uh, called the essentials of honorable leadership. Uh, And 
what I discovered way back when I was I was chief of training in Woodenville for nine years, and then I was as a battalion chief, and then I was going to go on shift. It was supposed to be a three-year assignment, and I was having so much fun that I stayed there nine years. So it was an opportunity. You know, some people going into the training division, it's a sentence, <laughs> a three-year right. sentence. For me, it was yeah. an opportunity. And mm-hmm. uh, I decided, well, I wanted to get some shift experience. And uh, so I, I went on shift, but I wanted to make sure that I, I had a good leadership ability. You know, we had four fire stations so in the, in the district. And so it was a four-station battalion. And uh, I, I wanted to be the best leader I could for the, the crews I was, was going to be supervising and managing. And so I started reading leadership books and articles and uh, went through the executive fire officer program. It took executive leadership and, and the, the two leadership classes there. And I would open the book would say leadership on the cover. And I would open the book and start reading. And, and it was about managing and supervising and making profits or winning championships or uh, commanding you know, military units, but mostly it was business oriented towards managing people, supervising people, having followers. And I said, you know, that they should say this is a book about supervision or management. That is, they shouldn't call it leadership. And then I started thinking, well, leadership has become a synonym for supervision and management and coaching and commanding. And I thought, man, leadership should be more important than that. That's that should be a standalone subject. That you know, leadership and supervision is very important, but the it, they should be two separate things. And uh, so I just I, way back in the eighties, about that time, now it was two thousand. One of the books I got was called "They Call Me Coach" by John Wooden, and I read that book, and I said. This book is about leadership. This is the first book I found about leadership. So I really got into John Wooden, read all his books, got a, uh, a DVD pub, uh, produced by uh, PBS, uh, and I bought that. And uh, anyway, he had something called the Pyramid of Success and a Definition of Success. And his Pyramid of Success, in fact, I wrote a series of articles in Firehouse called the Fire Station Pyramid of Success, based on his pyramid. And then I decided, you know, if I changed a few things, it would work better for me, you know. Cause, you know so I made a few subtle changes, and I, I know he wouldn't have minded. He, he passed away in 2010 at the age of 99. Um, and I also d- discovered that he didn't come up with this pyramid out of nowhere. No, nobody comes up with things like that. Uh, out of nowhere, that most of the I got a hold of a 1939 book called uh, Naval Leadership, published in 1939, and most of the pyramid is in that book. Coincidentally, uh, just in about 1942-43, Wooden went into the Navy as a uh, captain and did physical training and and the. Uh, and things in the Navy. He never was assigned to battle. Uh, and then he also talked to some of the other places he got some of the information from, a, a coach called Piggy Lambert when he was at Purdue. Um, but anyway, that's 
that's where I am right now, and I'm, I'm putting this together. I've, I've taught some classes using it that have been well received, and um, the, you mentioned the influence of things. The one thing that the all those other leadership book teaches is that leadership is influence of other people. Supervision and management and coaching is the influence of other people. Leadership is the influence of yourself. That's a perspective I'm taking. Mm. So leadership, you know, was for generations has been stuffed into this box of organizational context. And I'm liberating leadership, I guess, out of that organizational context box and making it a separate standalone topic that I think is more important than supervision and management. But you put those two things together in, in the context of a fire station. If everybody in the fire department is taught leadership, in fact, in East Valley, Yakima County, everybody that came into that fire department, didn't matter if they were volunteer, career, uh, administrative staff, the first day that they are, they are in the fire station, they spend the entire day with me teaching honorable leadership. Uh, it doesn't matter what their role or responsibility is. The expectation was everybody will be a leader. Everybody's got a different job description, a different role and responsibility, but everybody will be a leader. And this is what leadership looks like at East Valley Fire Department. How do you and, define leader? What What is a leader outside of organization? the context of an organization? What does it mean to you to be a leader? Well, since the, it's the influence of yourself, Leadership is your behavior. It starts with your attitude, and there's seven components to attitude. Then character is built on that attitude, attitude and relationships. And then uh, role and responsibility preparation. And then a part of that is to, whatever your role and responsibility or job description, or if you're a parent, you have rock-solid fundamentals. I call it RSF. And then there's moral courage. That's where poise and confidence is and integrity. And then trust, which I added. John Wooden didn't have moral courage or trust. I added those two, uh, replaced two of his. And then ultimately at the very top is peace of mind, which is uh, part of the definition of success. Well, I like that idea that uh, that you lead yourself before you lead others. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you about was uh, – a quality, what does a quality officer development program contain? But from your description here, it sounds to me like as a fire chief, from your perspective, you're building officers from their first day on the job as a firefighter. Would you agree with that? Oh, ab absolutely. In fact, I think in a recruit academy that you're also developing officers. And I don't, I don't mean as far as what their job is, but the attitude that they will have when they're an officer is developed. Mm -hmm. um, can I give you a quick example? Yeah. Uh, I remember my recruit school in 1983. Uh, it was a state academy at, in Kenmore, Washington, before there was a state academy in North Bend. And I remember that when we did live fire training, it wasn't so much about firefighter skills or being aware of your surroundings or looking at the soffits before you go in, make sure there's no fire or smoke showing there. It was all about adrenaline and emotional attachment to what's going on. And don't think 
just just go in the door with that whole thing. And Aggressive. that attitude, that emotional experience stays with you when you become a company officer and a battalion chief and a fire chief. And if 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 we did things right, in fact, melting your face shield in the academy was like a badge of courage that everybody's high-fiving. Oh, wow, good for you. You really took the heat. And the if we were actually doing things correctly, we could have opened the door and squirted water in through the door and extinguished the fire. But that's an unemotional event. You don't need adrenaline to do that. That It, it works every single time, which has recently been validated by UL and NIST research. Uh, instead of quick or fast attack, if we had if we did fast water, most fires would be boring. <laughs> They'd be over quick. <laughs> yeah. So that that attitude, the, the they were not demonstrating to us how to do a intelligent and safe coordinated fire ground operation. In right. fact, every live fire acquired structure fire I did in my career after that. It was all about melting your face shield, your helmet shield, and adrenaline, and getting the heat, and getting your turnouts dirty. And it wasn't about what what is an intelligence and safe fireground operation supposed to look like. I've never, nobody has ever shown me what it's supposed to look like and sound like. I assume that in your time as the training chief in Woodenville, you guys did live fire training. Yes. And I assume that melting the face shields wasn't part of that training. Yeah, we told – in order to get live fire, we didn't have a drill tower or a burn, a burn tower. So I, did, I started a program up at North Bend called Region 10 uh, Multi-Company Live Fire Operations. And then we advertised, and it was the only way I could guarantee that every single firefighter in Woodville was going to get live fire training at least once a year. Um, so we ended, we had at least three engines, often four, at least one ladder truck, usually two, two chiefs and a medic unit that would go up to North Bend. We had a dispatcher, uh, Gary Thamer would go up. I mentioned him earlier, uh, and he would, he would kind of walk around coaching the incident managers outside. So the firefighters got to do their, uh, you know, recreation with the hose line and stuff. But uh, it was more about uh, being a division supervisor, the incident command. He would coach at the command post. We had a staging area set up, and this is what staging should look like. And when you're sent to staging, this is this is what you mm-hmm. do. We don't want any helmet shields melted. This is not about that. This is, you know, uh, but we didn't squirt water through the windows because it would have been done in 10 seconds. And <laughs> Next, next operation. <laughs> right. Well, how did you get from your training, your initial training of being been shown the emotional way to fight fires to this place where you're running fires in your agency and explicitly emphasizing an intelligent attack in versus a simply um, emotional? I've, attack. I've read some of your stuff before where you talk you know, an emotional attack, but you you've talked about. I think there's a question in, in some of your writing somewhere that says something to the effect that at one point did it become necessary and or desirable for us to be mingling with the flames in order to put them out? How did you get yeah, from rather your initial than have training? water mingle with the heat? 
Right, right. Rather than have water mingle with the heat, which used right. to be a priority back in the 50s and 60s. Um, yeah, before before we had gear that would allow us, permit us to to mingle in the presence of the flames. Exactly. But but you yeah. you you grew up in this other culture. You grew up in this culture that emphasized an, a, an emotional attack, aggressive through the door, go get it. And I'm not saying that there that I'm not saying there's nothing wrong. I don't have any any qualms about aggressive firefighting. It's but the intelligent piece is the piece that you specifically identify, which I think is too often lacking. How did you change the culture? How did you grow up in that culture? And I'm sure you had pushback. I'm sure there was pushback. Uh, oh yeah. In fact, uh, when I was a lieutenant in a fire station, I I would tell people. I started reading uh, uh, fatality investigation reports, which were done at that time by the U.S. Fire Administration before NIOSH took over. In fact, Pang Warehouse uh, in Seattle was investigated by U.S. Fire Administration. And I started reading those, and after I read three or four, and I, I, I ignored dr- driving-related fatalities, and I ignored uh, physiologic fatalities like heart attacks, and just focused on fire ground operations where somebody was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I just quickly discovered, you know, the, the same thing is happening over and over and over again. There's like 10 things, five primary things that happen on every one of these incidents that are identified. And the one, the one thing I identified that was number one in every single one of them, from Pang Warehouse to uh, uh, South Carolina at the Sofa Factory, uh, you name it. Uh, Joe Dupee in La- Warehouse in Los Angeles. You just keep going down the list. Nobody did a size up. <laughs> you know, guys fall through the floor. There's three or four firefighters every year for decades now that I've been watching that do fast attack, go in the front door, fall through the floor to their death because nobody knew the fire was in the basement. How does that, you know, if the airline industry functioned like that after airline crashes, that they did kept doing the same thing over and over, they, who would fly? <laughs> right. True. Yeah. Can I tell a little story? Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I want to, I want to circle back to something about what you said about okay. Please um, do. the, the whole, can we put a place mark, a placeholder on your story? Yeah, Absolutely. Sure, I want well, to thanks. circle back to when you said you spent nine years in the training division and you that sometimes, oftentimes going in the training division is a sentence rather than an opportunity. And that's, that has been my experience as well. I also spent nine years in the training division and I'm, and I felt like it was a great place to um, influence not just a company, but the entire department and maybe the region. Cause you talked about having partners that you're, that you're working with. Why do you think it is that uh, as such an important position that has so much potential and so much influence, why is it so often viewed as a sentence rather than an opportunity? I, I think one reason is fire departments don't usually say anybody want to be in the training division because no, you know, most people won't say yes. So it's like, okay, you're promoted to battalion chief. The first thing you're going to do is spend three years in, in or two years in the training division. Uh, you know, then, then you go on shift. 
Um, so it's, it's difficult finding people that want to be there. Why that is, I don't know, because you, like you just said, you can make such a big difference, not only in your fire department, but regionally, uh, or statewide even that it's, you know, it's such a great opportunity. And if, if, if it's an opportunity, it'll be fun. Yeah. You stayed there nine years, so you must've been having fun. (laughs) Uh, Depending on which day you ask. You know, now the forty-hour well, work week. I think, a lot, to be honest, in a career department, a lot of people don't want to work a forty-hour work week. Right, right. They got side yeah. jobs, and et cetera. Uh, yeah. They they live, you know, hundred miles away. Uh, so now they got to drive to work every day, five, four or five days a week. There's logistical problems for a lot of people sure. to do that. Sure. You know, in my time in training, um, for me, that scheduled work really well. And there's a lot of stuff that's coming out now about the impacts of sleep deprivation on um, oh, yeah. our health, you know, the cancer epidemic and the fire service and how sleep could possibly be related to that. But during my time in training, we'd have people come on light duty and be assigned to me. And uh, without exception, after three or four days in the training division, they're standing in the door telling me they didn't know how sleep deprived they were. They liked that schedule pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> no so, kidding. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now they're always they were always eager to get back, but they you don't realize how the sleep's affecting you, the lack of sleep's affecting you until you you get um some sustained rest. You know, you get a you get really get experience what it feels like to be rested. Um. Okay, I interrupted you. We put a placeholder in there. Do you remember where we were? The story you wanted to share? Yeah, I th- you were asked about the roots of. Uh, you know, right? I was talking about U.S. Fire Administration ports, reports in yeah. the late eighties. Changing the when I was changing the culture in Woodenville. You know how you how you managed how you went about yes. doing that. And and one of the things I start telling people after reading those reports is, you know, at, at every one of these reports, there was no life safety problem at that incident until the fire department got there. To this day, every single NIOSH report, a U.S. Fire Administration fatality report. There was no life safety problem at that incident until the fire department got there, with one exception, and that was in Keokuk, Iowa. Uh, but as it turns out, they, the, the, the children were deceased, but they, they had to go try. And they laid their hose down. I don't know if you remember reading that report. They, they, it's a farmhouse, big farmhouse, and mom and one of the kids got out the window and over a balcony on the second floor. The, the the crew put their the fire was in the kitchen. Uh, police officer broke the window with a flashlight, and they put the hose line down, went upstairs to get the kids, and the, left the front door open. Well, the fire went right to the front door, and then the windows broken on the second floor went up the stairs to that window, looking for oxygen, and killed the the two firefighters up there. The, the children that they believe were already deceased. But if they would have just put the kitchen fire out, <laughs> uh, you know, which they could see from the front door, mm-hmm. you know, no, no problem. So that that was the one, the one re- re- epiphany, I guess you'd call it. I had is there's no life safety problem at the vast majority of building fires in North America. There's no life safety problem until the fire department gets there. Mm-hmm. That was my experience. We didn't fight a lot of fire in Woodenville. Uh, I don't think anybody does anymore. And the odds of you being the first officer on scene at a given building fire is 
maybe once a year, twice a year at the most. For the average fire officer, maybe not one is the first new officer. Um, my dad also influenced that philosophy. Uh, he was he graduated from recruit school in, in 1950 in Long Beach, California. Uh, pretty good sized fire department, twenty some stations uh, career. And he said in 1950, after he graduated, he was assigned to Station 10 in Long Beach. And they had a five-person engine company, four-door engine, uh, no jump seats, four doors, fully enclosed. And his captain's rule was, if we're first in at a fire, which that neighborhood's mostly residential and um, mom and pop uh, unreinforced masonries, was... Uh, the officer uh, chocks and primes. I mean, the driver, the engineer chocks and primes. I'm going to go do a size up. You guys, the other three guys are going to sit on the engine till I get back and have figured out what we're going to do. <laughs> not, not even get tools, not even shoulder if, line. If just... they, he said, if he saw fire showing and not just smoke, he would tell one of them to pull a booster line that squirt the fire. Uh, well, he was doing a size up in 1950. Mm-hmm. Where did that master craftsman strategist go? What happened to that? You know, Long Beach, California is not a podunk fire department. They're, uh, and, you know, Long Beach is still there. It didn't burn to the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. Where did that go? And that's have, that's uh, an interesting question. Yeah, it is an interesting question. Do you uh, have a, a a thought about that? Where did it go? Um, I know what the progression in Long Beach was. Uh, the first thing they did is they took the – they had an SCBA that was in a suitcase in a compartment that was for hazmat, my dad said. And then they required firefighters to wear an SCBA, so they mounted them in the compartment. Uh, you probably remember you would throw the pack over your head from the, the bracket in the compartment. Well, that takes too much time. So what we're going to do is we're going to put it in the seats. We're going to build, put the SCBAs in the seats so they can have the SCBA pack kind of already have the harness on and the, the mask at standby uh, when they get off the rig. That'll, that'll save some a minute or whatever. And then they said, well, it, it takes too long to open the door, so we got to get rid of the two back doors and put these seats you know, backwards so they're ready to jump off the rig and grab a pre-connector or go to the rear of the rig and get a hose line. So what what happened there is that strategic master craftsman, aggressive strategy, I like to call it, which is size up, uh, risk assessment, personnel accountability, action planning. That's all strategic stuff. Uh, Tactics is hose ladders and all that. That that strategic priority became uh, tactical speed. The tactical speed eclipsed that master craftsman strategist. And, and what happened is, is we turned fire officers into firefighters. Um, like quick attack and fast attack, the officer's not going to do a size up. What do you need an officer on the engine for? If all they're going to do is grab a line and go in the front door, why, why pay somebody extra money to do that? Well, the fire ground... <laughs> uh, the way I think of it too is that the fire ground was a little more forgiving back in the fifties too, right? Building construction wasn't what it is today where it fails quickly with 
you know, direct exposure on these fires with huge heat release rates. So it's kind of like emphasizing speed in the context that's changing, right? The fire service is changing in that it's wanting to emphasize speed with the technology that they're developing while silently and early on silently it's they're not realizing how the context is changing the buildings are looking different they're built different they're built with math and not mass and they are these fuels right they're not forgiving fuels at all they're they're um burning so quickly you know it's an interesting question exactly though the it was rare uh, I asked my dad how often that he, you know he saw a flashover because they were a real busy engine company in a, in a low income part of Long Beach, and uh, in fact the old Station Ten is now a museum. But anyway, uh, he said I, I don't really remember ever seeing a flashover because you know the night and now it made sense with the Nistrial research that it it took a long time for flashover to happen compared to the mm-hmm. petrochemical based fire load we have today. And yeah, in fact, that's why they had pump cans. They could they could be dispatched, arrive on scene, grab the pump can, walk in the door, and squirt the fire out because fire grew so slowly. Well, you know, pump that's can a, today is a waste of time. <laughs> well, there's a really compelling video that I'm sure you've seen. It's been out a long time now, but where they have the the legacy fuels in one room and a split screen, lightweight or modern fuels in the uh, adjacent screen and then the time to flash over. And it's like three minutes to 30 minutes, you know? Right. And that's just, that's yeah, That's part of that research to, that uh, the Fire yeah. Safety Research Institute uh, has yeah. been doing. Yeah. Pretty, pretty compelling video. video. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. I want to ask you, uh, what's your recipe for developing what you describe as authentic poise and confidence? Well, again, that's part of the honorable leadership template that I've developed, and uh, in in our in our craft of firefighting, poise and confidence, we call that uh, command presence. And you can't fake uh, poise, uh, and you have to be confident to have poise. Well, you can't be confident until you've had ample preparation for whatever your role and responsibility is. And you're not going to be able to be prepared mentally, mentally, physically, and uh, emotionally until you have character. And uh, so that's the character level of the template, which is built upon the foundation of attitude and relationships. And uh, it starts, the the foundation is uh, honorable ambition. It's got to be not just about you, but about your t- the teammates and and doing the best job you can. And then industriousness. And then right in the center is friendship, loyalty, and cooperation. And that's the incubator for team spirit, which is at the preparation level. That that's that's developed at a very at the very beginning. That friendship, loyalty, and cooperation with enthusiasm and sincerity. So that friendship and loyalty is sincere. It's not being driven by dishonorable ambition that you're just using people or or whatever. And Mm. then it builds up to uh, team spirit, which is at the preparation level. And I know this is all abstract. (laughs) 
Well, it's, uh, it's it's getting everybody ready for your book when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, um, something you said earlier, though, that I'm reminded of when I think about because I, I, that really stood out to me. That made a lot of sense to me. Authentic poise and confidence. Um, and when you're placed in that leadership role as a company officer, being able to be successful in that role, how necessary those two uh, qualities are. But I liked your reference to rock solid fundamentals because I think those are linked. In my mind, those are linked. If you're rock solid on your fundamentals, whether it be your your tactical, your task level work, or your leadership skills, which in in your paradigm begins on day one as a firefighter, you know it's not when you decide to test for company officer. It's you've been you've been preparing for that test since you walked in the door. I re- I really like that idea of developing authentic poise and confidence and, and rock solid fundamentals being the, a big part of that. Oh yeah. The, the, the rock solid fundamentals is you cannot have genuine poise and confidence without those role and responsibility, rock solid fundamentals. You, yeah. you just, so you, how does you, it, you can't do it. So as knowing that I, I need to, uh, you know, if somebody thinking about going into a company officer promotion, who's in a department without maybe a, a formal officer development program. How do they make sure that they are capable of leading themselves? How do you, what are your recommendations or thoughts about how to um, prepare yourself for that position if there is no established program formally in your department to do so? That would make it very, very difficult uh, to do that because, you know, what, what do you, what do you train on and what do you train with? Um, does your fire department provide some things, at least tools to use? Like here's the structured and systematic model we have for size up uh, and risk assessment. And then you just, if they're not going to do simulations and help you practice, just drive around in your car on your own and just imagine uh, this little mini market. There's fire showing through the side Charlie and, and uh, physically make yourself walk around the building and do an arrival report before you do that. And then, uh, you know, do your, do your action plan. Your uh, NFPA fire officer one calls it the initial action plan, not the whole plan, just mm-hmm. the initial one. Uh, just anything, take, take a building construction class, read books. Um, when I read Francis Brannigan's building construction, second edition, uh, uh, building construction for the fire service in 1985, or I think I was. It was, and then I read at the same time in tandem with that Brunacini's first edition of his fire command in 1985. Uh, I, I all of a sudden I discovered, you know, there's a, a whole nother side to this business than hose ladders, tactics, and emotions. Mm. <laughs> you know. You know, I, I never even thought about thinking about the building we were going in and around. And I read many times his book. And then Brunacini said, well, there's a strategic side to the fire service that I didn't know existed. Mm. That, wow, that, this is, there's a cerebral side to this business <laughs> uh, that just uh, was compelling to me. Use that word compelling. That was compelling. Yeah. Yeah. So, but what I'm hearing you say, though, that for yourself, part of your your path was um, your own inquiry, your own curiosity, and in looking into and in reading 
learning from discovering things. Um, and that was outside your department. You didn't depend on your department for that. I think it underscores the importance of an officer development program um, and perhaps the role that the training officer can have in that. If you're looking for content um, on how to or how to structure or what to include in an officer development program that the, um, the size up process that you mentioned, providing a formal structure, something that people can practice the same way every time. And then looking for good books on leadership. And, and um, um, if you have everybody in the department reading the same books, you know, having, uh, creating an opportunity for discussion, trying to get things moving. I think that that's a good way to start anyway. Yeah, one of the best ways to learn is to teach. And so, you know, company officer in a station, if he wants to develop his own people because there's no formal program, say, okay, uh, Firefighter Jones, you're going to read Chapter 2, The Principles of Building Construction, and Brandigan's book. And then you're going to give us all a little class Mm -hmm. on that, just a little one-hour session. And, and talk about that. And if, you know, if you want to create a PowerPoint, I'll help you do that if you don't know how to. Uh, so, you know, you got to get creative. Um, I, I was a couple chief of, of training. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead Rob. No, no, well, I was, I was just going to say there's a couple of tools we've mentioned. One is the NIOSH program. And I know that you've done a lot of good work with developing a pretty in-depth NIOSH in, uh um, curriculum package, the way that you present it. It's more than just simply reading it. And I'd like you to speak about that just a moment. Oh, sure. But then also all the, all the good work coming out of the UL. There's so much good content there to, that you can c- include in uh, a training program or an officer development program. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned a guy just trying to help himself that, that fire safety research Institute website. I mean, it's all free. There is we are we are we are in an incredible time right now in the fire service. It's really the are. first time in history that research has been done to either validate or invalidate our anecdotal fire round operations. Uh, it, it's never happened before, and they're, they're taking our tax dollars, the federal government. You know, somebody says, "Well, you know, who, what, what's the government doing for me?" Well, if you're a firefighter. They're doing a lot for you with all this research. They are doing a lot. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's just, it's remarkable. But you're talking about the case, uh, the case study program. I, I yeah. Did. If you could, if you could dive into that a little bit, I think that I really enjoyed um, my exposure to what you've done in that work. And I think it'd be valuable just to kind of share uh, how you've developed that. Well, I, I, again, I said early on, I, I discovered the value of those case studies. That, uh, and so as a battalion chief, I would schedule a NIOSH case study. I called them case studies, a fatality investigation case study. And uh, I'd schedule, okay, I'll, I'll be at your station in four weeks, uh, three weeks, and we'll go over this NIOSH report. And now I would provide them uh, – with the NIOSH report and that way then when I started, you had to print it and actually give a copy to everybody. Uh, I would do a discussion guide. So I'd go through the NIOSH report in detail or U S fire administration report when I first started and highlight things. And uh, I would add that to the discussion guide. 
so that when they're reading the report, I wanted them to find certain things in there that are important. Well, they would there'd be a question on the guide, and they'd answer it when they got to that. And it was in order, so they didn't have to hunt around. And then I created a key for myself in case I forgot something, and I'd put little <laughs> notes on the uh, answer key, uh, you know, embellishments. And then I created a PowerPoint. And then I, I, I'd get a radio. Now you can usually get uh, audio uh, from the radio traffic, uh, news, video clips, um, any, anything I could get to, to put in that PowerPoint. Uh, often the fire department itself would do an investigation report. Sometimes the state fire marshal, I would get a hold of those PDFs and, and review those and see how it matched up with uh, NIOSH. And so I'd give them a few weeks to do the discussion guide. And then when I got to their station, I'd do the PowerPoint. We'd go uh, one by one through the discussion guide. And at the very end, I'd say, okay, what are five things that if they would have done different, uh, and they waited till I got there before we filled that out. What are five things that they, if they would have done different, those, those people would still be alive today. And invariably, it's if they had done a size up, first thing. Uh, if they had a water supply, if uh, they they weren't breaking windows, if you know that, and, and after a while, this this one lieutenant named Darren Bunger told me after a few of these, he goes, "Chief, it's the same thing every time. The same thing's happening every." And I go, "Bingo." <laughs> That was, that was, you, I was hoping to hear that. <laughs> yeah. What I, what impressed me was that, um, well, I think, I think that that, the way you structure it is very helpful. It's a form of mentoring when they know that the battalion chief's going to come in and we're going to sit down and we're going to go through this. And you've put the work in ahead of time to show that there's value here. And there's some, there's some very specific takeaways I want you guys to, to have here. Um, it's different than, um, all those resources are available to all of us. And, uh, without that little bit of mentoring, um, and accountability, it's, it's easy for that not to be the priority to take a look at that. And there's some really valuable stuff in there that, which we all know, right? I mean, the, the biggest honor that we can make to, uh, people that have died in the line of duty is to learn from that sacrifice. And I, I did not do any sort of uh, program nearly as, as in depth, but your interest in the line of duty death program and what you did encouraged me to, to make that a part of what I was putting out quarterly for our guys. So every quarter they'd have a new line of duty death report, you know, and um, I had a, a newly promoted company officer come up to me after about a year or two of doing this. And he said, that he was, he had been dispatched. He was first in on a strip mall, smoke showing on a strip mall. And he stood there in front of the building and he said, okay, this is what these line of duty deaths have been talking about, right? It, the, the slide came up in his mind and we've, and that, that I got, I, it's fun. It's, it might seem corny, but I got goosebumps right now talking about it because that was my hope was that all of these guys running around guys and gals who don't have the experience they need because they don't fight enough fires to get the repetitions they need. And they may not have a burn tower and they're not doing live fire training enough to be good at the job. How do we put those slides in their heads so that when they, 
when they do pull that card and they are first in and they're looking at it, that they're not just blindly going through the front door, but they are learning from the lessons of the past. And so that was a, that that was an that was an encouraging thing. But I really love the uh, the depth that you've gone to uh, in your program, and think uh, it's something I wanted to highlight here because I think if anybody that's interested in in doing something similar, to know that that kind of resource is out there to to uh, they don't have to invent it; we can remodel it after what you've done. Yeah, in fact, your listeners, if they would like to receive a whole package of the PDF NIOSH report, the discussion guide, answer key for the facilitator, the PowerPoint, uh, I'd be happy to send it to them, the, the whole package. Uh, uh, okay. But for those, just I'll give them my email address. I don't know if you can type it down there. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll, put your e- we'll put your email um, in the show notes. And uh, any okay. other links that we mentioned today uh, will be in the show notes and available. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll make it easy for people to get in touch with you that are interested in that. We've talked a little bit about size up and um, command training. You, you referenced what you've done at, and the the Live Burn program in North Bend. I think that's an important part of of Live Fire that oftentimes goes ignored is training for the division soups and incident commander and not just task level training of going in, put the fire out. So let's talk now about, um, ITAC. ITAC's a program that you've developed years ago, and I'll just let you dig into the, the details of it. But basically I'd just like to know what it is and why did you develop ITAC? Well, in a nutshell, uh, everything we've talked about so far contributed to ITAC, fatality reports, what my dad reported. The, uh, what really, where ITAC really came into fruition was when we were driving back after doing live fire training, multi-company at North Bend, and we would make a list of problems we kept seeing in communication or accountability. and and that we had no answer on how to solve some of these problems. So we, myself and Gary Thamer as we, came up with them. And the the concept uh, of ITAC popped into my mind. Actually, it was one of our lieutenants said, oh, you know what that, you know, that you've, you've integrated this stuff. Someone, he said something like that. And I said, well, that's it. I'm going to call it integrated tactical accountability. And so that's what ITAC stands for, an integrated tactical accountability system. The I represents incident command that's competent because we were noticing, you talked about poise and confidence, that we had guys up there who were career battalion chiefs who got the promotion, but they were unprepared. Nobody had prepared them to be a battalion chief. They prepared for a test, uh, but they weren't prepared to be an operator. And, and they were incompetent incident commanders. In fact, one incident, one guy, I won't say where he was from, was so embarrassed he got in his car and left uh, before lunch. Uh, there was a battalion chief. You know, it it revealed inadequacies in, in preparation and training. So that's kind of where it emerged from and kept developing. And uh, we noticed radio communication was just like on a real fire, terrible. Uh, a lot of conversations, so we came up with methods and techniques to 
what NFPA calls the incident commander is supposed to control uh, radio communication. But they don't say how to do that. Uh, so we came up with systems and, and models for controlling radio communication. Um, but that that's that's where it emerged from and, and just developed and flourished from there. I think that's a helpful distinction to make is that sometimes the NFPA will tell us what it is they want us to do, and then that's the end of it. <laughs> so, so part of what ITAC is doing is is acknowledging what is uh, stated in these standards, but then providing you a means to meet them. Is that right? I used to like to say we provide music to the words of incident management. <laughs> and so that the NFPA is tells you a, what the words are, but. Uh, they don't provide the music. Right. Right. So uh, how does ITAC organize the size up and incident action planning process? It, it's interesting as I've traveled around the country and actually Canada and South America teach an ITAC. Uh, if you ask people, uh, okay, we do a size up, we have a size up model. And I say, does that include risk assessment? And they'll go, uh, not really. Well, so well, how does how does your how are your officers supposed to do during size up a risk assessment? Well, in NFPA fifteen hundred, it says that the whoever has command responsibility is supposed to do a size up that includes risk assessment. It says the exact same thing in Washington state law. Uh, in Washington state, we have what's called the WAC, Washington Administrative Code. It says the same thing. You're supposed to do a size up that includes risk assessment. When I ask people, how does your fire department teach you to do risk assessment? I've never found one fire department so far in North or South America that has a model and a method for doing risk assessment. A lot of people so, have philosophies, risk a lot to save a lot. There you Kumbaya. go. That's what I, that's, that's, what I, that's what I wanted to ask you. So, Because that's a common one you hear a lot, right? Well, we risk a lot to that's save a That's a philosophy, lot. correct. Okay, so to make a distinguishment then between a philosophy and a process uh, curriculum, yeah, for for teaching risk assessment. Well, if I would ask myself, I didn't have one either. <laughs> a process, uh, but I mentioned Stuart Rose, one of the training guys, deputy chief of training and safety in Seattle, uh, retired now, lives in Salem, Oregon. Uh, but when I was training officer, he was training officer, and man, we. We we had collaborated on. If you don't know who Stuart Rose was, if you use passport accountability, he's the guy that invented the passport accountability system. <laughs> okay. And uh, anyway, he's the only person. He's the only person I know of that has developed and used a, a risk assessment model that he teaches, uh, and he still teaches uh, to this day. And it's called value time size, and it's included with your size up. Uh, the big six size up, which we do in ITAC, and then there's value times size. You know, and you determine is there value. You know, where is the value, and how long based on resources I have coming and uh, the size of my operation potential, and how long will that value last? So, do I have value based on the construction? How long will that value last? And do I have enough resources resources to preserve the value that exists right now, or do I have to write that off? and broaden 
where I'm going to protect value. So you might have a multifamily uh, fire where you've got uh, an apartment on fire, fire venting, and you say, no, there's no value in there. That's 100% involved. There is value in the apartment above, and there is value in the, the part, apartment uh, Bravo Delta. So we're going to be defensive on is there on the apartment on fire, but we're going to be offensive on the exposures. So when you ask the questions in your mind, value time size, is there value? Do we have time? Do I have the resources, water, people, et cetera? If you get one no, this is the elegance of Stewart's system. If you get one no, you're defensive. You have to have three yeses to be offensive. So like I said, you had one no in that one apartment, but you had three yeses on the exposures. It, it's a it's an amazing model. It's the only one I'm aware of. How does it how does that integrate with what you said earlier where you noticed on so many line of duty death reports, no size ups done and somebody runs through the front door and goes into the floor, into the basement through the floor. So using the value time size um assessment process, risk assessment process. How does that how, how do those integrate? Because if somebody's walking up to the fire building and thinking my risk assessment is value time size, how does that account for the potential fire in the basement? Well, again, that, that, that dovetails with size up. So as you're doing your size up, you have smoke showing on floor one, let's say, uh, and then you get to side Charlie and you don't see a basement on side alpha because it's a daylight basement. So you get to side Charlie and oh, there's a basement, the fire's in the basement. So I've, I've identified where the fire is, and it's free-burning, so I know we're probably post-flashover. And so we're going to get a hose line back there and extinguish the fire from side Charlie. It's quick, fast water, as fast as we can do it. Uh, we're talking about a house fire here. And nobody went in inner floor one until the fire's extinguished, and we can determine how much damage there is to the floor uh, from underneath. And Okay. So taking that taking that value time size risk assessment with you on your 360, getting a as complete a picture as you can in that walk around of what the conditions are, what you have as far as the building um, and conditions within the building, and then applying that BTS model to that. Yep. Yeah. There's no yeah. value in the basement. There's value on floor one and floor two. Uh, do we have time? We don't know because we don't know what the floor structure is. If it's lightweight wood, I, I Joyce, we have no time on floor one because if they were, if there's no sheetrock, if they're just burned away, I Joyce, then right. Well, we're we're not going to go above that. Um, do we have the resources? Uh, that's that house in some fire departments. You may just get one in, engine and the next one's thirty minutes away, and with a tender. Uh, so you would get a no there. So you might not be offensive at all, whereas if you're in downtown Seattle with that house, yeah, you're going to be defensive from Charlie and then determine if it's safe to enter and then maybe ladder floor two, do a search through a window. Um, but it's, it just really helps you determine, especially the value part and the time part, uh, whether you should be offensive or not. And, and it's just so elegant because you get one no, you're defensive. That is a lot more to work with than 
risk a lot to save a lot. Because the risk a lot to save a lot is conceptually makes sense, but it's a lot like a, something from NFPA that says, um, you know, yeah. tells you tells you what is needed without how to do it. Yeah, risk a lot to save a lot's a philosophy. It's not a process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about how you how you organize size up? The from from arrival, pull, you know, pulling the the air brake on arrival to giving a radio report where you're you're you've completed your 360 and and letting everybody know what you have in your action plan. What does it look like? How do you structure that in ITAC? Well, as you know, it's part of uh, what we call our four-box process. And your box one is your arrival report. There's five items in each box. Because uh, actually, actually it was myself and Stuart Rose, we we discovered fire officers arrive with this big box full of all kinds of stuff, the weather, construction, you know, sunspot activity, you know, whatever. <laughs> They've just got all yeah. this stuff to think about. Well, when you pull up to the address, what do you really, what should you be focusing on? Well, n- number one, through the windshield does not qualify as a size up. So you only say what you know is 100% true when you arrive. And so what we say is we that you say you're on scene to dispatch. And then the five things are occupancy and showing. So house, nothing showing. Strip mall, smoke showing. Uh, school, fire showing. House fire showing. Multifamily fire showing. So and there's only three showings. Nothing, smoke, or fire. And type of occupancy, house, multifamily, strip mall. That's that's all. You don't talk about construction. You don't talk about how many floors there are because you don't know for sure through the windshield. Uh, then the next thing you do is, is you uh, declare where site alpha is. Because at North Bend, we saw it gets so screwed up where people didn't know where site alpha was. The incident commander might have, a division supervisor, but, but it got really messed up because it wasn't clear to everybody. So you make that clear right up front. So occupancy showing, site alpha, capture all resources with just a couple of words. And what that eliminates is people saying, hey, we're, we're a block out. Where do you want the turntable? Or, you know, you know, hey, do you want us to bring you a hydrant? You know, you'll, you'll say all apparatus park, engine one, bring a hydrant or whatever. And then you initiate command. You don't establish it. You don't name it. And you go into the investigation mode. So now you're, that's, this is where the size up happens in the investigation mode. Can I interrupt you there, Mark? Yeah, sure. Because one of the things I loved about the four box process, right, is like you said, you show up as an, as a company officer and you own that address. Right, you are the highest ranking person on scene, and you've got that whole giant box with a hundred things to do, and the the that four box process can simplify that down to where I am, where am I at in the big picture of things right now? I've just got here. I probably know less than the person standing in the front yard, right? So that box right. one, it, that box one is really your friend as the first due officer because it's taking that huge set of responsibilities and reducing it down to a very manageable, easy to remember group of five things I can accomplish quite easily. And I can, if I do these five things, I'm going to buy myself some time to move into that box and take on a few more responsibilities, but to do it in a way that is structured and intelligent so that you can, um, 
you, you can't manage a hundred things and you can successfully manage three to five, right? I think the research is saying like four, you can hold four things in your short-term memory, Correct. your yeah. working memory. I've heard that also. Right? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll let you go from there, but I just wanted to say that about box one, because if you're a new company officer or you are a uh, firefighter who's interested in going for company officer and you are overwhelmed by the, being in that guy's shoes, everybody's overwhelmed and being in those shoes. You got to have a way to break it down. And if you're using the ITAC status board, it's got the four boxes along the left side of the board. All you got to do is look in that up top left box and answer those five things in that box. You talk about poise and confidence. That helps you be poised on the radio. Yeah. Because you also you mentioned know, every, about getting out. And, yeah, right. <laughs> no pressure. You, uh, you also talked about getting out on your own and doing reps, you know, and I think that, that that's really good advice and there's no substitute for lots of repetition, lots of Box repetition one reps. because yes. And then that status board helps, helps as an insurance policy, right? You know, you know this stuff, but if you have a glitch or something in the moment, you have a quick reference. <laughs> it's not show up with your board and figure out size of it's like, I know, I know this stuff, but sometimes, you know, life happens, things happen. And if you need a fallback, that that box does a good or that that status board does a good job of of uh, acting as a net. Well, you know where I got the idea for that is uh, watching NFL football games on the sideline. <laughs> the different, yeah, the picture with Mike Holmgren when he was the coach right. of the Seahawks. It, it, you yeah. watch any NFL football game, and and if there's a coordinator on the sideline, uh, usually always defensive, but if the offensive coordinator is there also, when the defense is on the field, that coordinator has a sheet, laminated sheet, often ledger size, 11 by 17, which is the size of our board. And and nobody thinks the less of that guy. Look, at he's a professional coach, and he's got to have that board in his hand. Right. Uh, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of professionalism. Yeah. And <laughs> so, so I was thinking, well, God, why, why shouldn't you have a, a strategic tool you know, firefighters have tactical tools, hose, ladders, saws, things. Officers should have strategic tools that they use. And uh, so that, that's, that's where that emerged from. Yeah. Um, well, let's, you know, let's it's, it's interesting. One last thing about no, the ahead. football coach. Yeah. Every single play that that defensive or offensive coordinator calls, they, before they call that play, they've done a size up and a risk assessment. Size up includes down, distance, time, which side of the 50, hash mark, what person, what resources do I have? My second string quarterback or third string quarterback. And then based on those, and then how much risk do I want to take on third and two when we're behind by six points and there's one minute left on the clock? How much? So there's every single play they do a size up and a risk assessment before they call so the that, play. So, so. Uh, that's Super Bowl Seahawks versus Patriots. What sort of risk assessment was done on the one yard line with Marshawn Lynch in the backfield and they throw the ball and it gets intercepted? What was that risk assessment process like? I think it included <laughs> fingers like this, you know. Oh, I hope this works. Oh God. Yeah. yeah I had no idea that would ever make it into a podcast, but, <laughs> uh, but the uh, size about- off part. Box two. Yeah, box two. Uh, you still want to go there? Two. 
Yeah, let's do box. So, I, go ahead and walk us through the whole thing because I think it does a good job okay. of how to break up that huge set of responsibilities. Well, after the arrival report, and again, that, that box one is designed to take the pressure off so you can have poise, especially if you practice it occasionally on your own. Um, box one drills as you're driving around town. Uh, it starts with get your team going to task level. So if you see fire, go squirt the fire. Uh, uh, prepare for offensive from side alpha, and they would know what that means. I want two charge those lines of blower idling, engineer, pump operator is going to chalk prime and charge the lines uh, while you go do your officer responsibility, size up and risk assessment. So uh, that's, something you that you, for- you, that's something you think your dad would get behind. You're not making everybody stay in the cab and wait for the officer to get around. You're given you're given task level work to get everybody moving in the right direction while you go out and do the. Uh, the I walk think around. so because he he kind of I sensed from my dad that he thought it was kind of strange that they had to sit there <laughs> until the officer got back. Uh, I, when I first heard that, I could not believe it that yeah that 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 happened. Yeah. And then I went through the process. Well, how did how did Long Beach get to where they are today, uh, with jump seats and take the doors off? And uh, it's, it was all about tactical speed. That was the uh, right. another epiphany I had. Anyway, so after you've got your team going to task level, uh, then uh, it's look for somebody to talk to. You talked about the occupant and standing in the driveway. Talk to him. You know. Hey, I, I see smoke showing now. What did it look like a few minutes ago? Well, there there was fire coming out of those the, the that window there, but now it's just smoke. Well, he just told you that it's in, it's in decay. It either ran out of fuel or the fire's in decay. So you know that tells you how much risk you might want to take a fire in decay versus uh, like advancing in zero visibility. Really bad idea unless you know. Are you early in the fire growth or are you in decay? If you're decay, that's killed firefighters in reports. Do not advance in zero visibility unless you know what side of the fire growth curve you're on. Uh, so get that information. UPS driver called it in and says, yeah, there used to be fire back there, but now there's just that light smoke. Guy just helped, did part of a size up for you. <laughs> uh, you're still going to complete. Thank you. Do you mind going across the street? Uh, then you do your big six size up, and we wanted to narrow it down to make it as easy as possible and specific things for that officer to look for. And it's the six are fire, smoke, verified occupants, possible occupants, access problems, exposure problems. And where do I have, and the reason with those big sticks is because those are six problems I can assign firefighters to handle. I can't change the construction and I can't change the weather. Uh, but these six things, once I've identified, I can have a firefighter go take care of an access problem, do forcible entry. Um, I can have a uh, firefighter keep an exposure wet. I can do confining extinguishment on the fire. I can vent the smoke. I can do rescue for a verified occupant. I can evacuate a verified occupant. I can do primary search for a possible occupant or search and rescue. Um, I've got, and I know what those options are to call that play. With that, with that team. So, where do I have fire, and where is there going to be? Where is there smoke? Do I have any verified occupants? Nope, no verified. Do I have possible occupants? I have no reports, no compelling evidence. I have possible occupants on floor one and two. Uh, do I have access problems? No. 
Do I have exposure problems? Uh, yeah, the garage on side Charlie. I've identified my problems. Once I've done that and I've documented those, it just takes seconds with the status board shorthand. My action plan just fell in my lap. <laughs> it, it's just the action planning you almost don't even have to do once you've listed those problems. You know exactly what needs to be done. And then I go into box three and I do my value time size risk, risk assessment. Then I close box two and I open box three. Now, these aren't literal boxes on the dashboard. These are figurative boxes. Sure. Uh, and in box three, uh, now I'm going to do my uh, building snapshot. I'm going to talk about how many floors. Because, again, remember, box one, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only saying what I know is 100% true. I know it's a house and I got smoke showing. I don't know if it's two-story or, or three-story because it has a basement on Charlie. So I may, that may not be true that it's a th- two-story house. So now I'm going to talk about the building and maybe have a better idea of construction. I'm going to do my big six report, uh, just synopsize it, uh, fire floor two, smoke from the attic, unknown if occupied. And unknown, and that this is calling a play to people when they hear this. They, as soon as they hear unknown if occupied, they know that's a primary search fire, not rescue, and that it's a two-in and two-out operation once they hear that unknown if occupied. Um, if we're going to be offensive, there's still value. Uh, then I draft my initial action plan, just the first four or five, maybe, uh, you know, the six pack on the board. There's no more than six assignments on there to assign. And and then I start achieving tactical accountability by people reporting to me at my engine or if I'm at a command post, they hand me their ticket to play, which is the passport. And once I get that passport, I give the assignment face-to-face. Plug the passport into the plan, off they go. Now, what that eliminates by capturing resources in box one is, again, people saying, we're a block out, where do you want us? And it, it prevents me from having to go on your arrival, on your arrival, on your arrival, which prohibits me or delays me doing a size-up. So I want to I free myself to go do a, 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 an effective, thorough size-up and not have to talk on the radio to people that aren't there yet. So I, by, by doing that park and et cetera, everybody's been given an assignment. I don't care if I have 12 units coming, everybody's been given an assignment. Uh, and I can audible as, as I need. Everybody park, except, uh, uh, for example, you may have a rule in your fire department. If you say smoke or fire showing, that the second engine, first due truck, first due chief goes to the address. Everybody else parks. Because uh, what you don't what you don't need is a whole bunch of fire trucks. What do you need? People, People and tools. Yeah. <laughs> so keep the trucks out of the way and just get the re- the uh, apparatus that you might need as toolboxes. Uh, and the second engine is just in case the pump fails on the first one. You have another engine there, and then everybody leaves the street open so a medic unit can get in and out. Uh, uh, Another ladder truck can get in or, you know, tenders can go in and out, whatever the situation is. Close box three and then open box four. You're going to say something, Rob? I'm sorry. Well, water supply. We haven't talked about water supply and we've talked about possibly having two engines in the scene. What are your thoughts on water supply where that fits into the four that's, box That's part of system. capturing resources in box one. I think I might even mention it, but all apparatus park. 
uh, engine one bring a hydrant or engine two bring a okay. hydrant, you know, whatever. Okay. And okay. a lot of departments is just automatic. Once you say fire smoke showing, second engine will automatically bring a hydrant or the tender yeah. will go to the address. Uh, you just, you just front load that when you, when you say in box one, everybody knows what it means. Nothing showing. Then everybody, everybody would park except maybe the first new chief or whatever. You just built in whatever you're comfortable with. If fire smoke are showing that gives assignments without having to give the assignment. Right. You call the yeah, play. That, fr- that front loading process is so helpful. If you get everybody on the same sheet of music and practicing the same sheet of music, so that you don't have to spell yeah. out every single detail out. So closing box three, let's summarize so far. Three boxes have been used. So box one is is what you can see from the windshield and nothing more. And it's to arrival get things report. started. Exactly. So when you go over, yeah, when you do that arrival report over the radio, you're basically letting people know, they can tell from your from your radio report, you've got a working fire or you don't. Right, based on the very yep. brief description. Based on box showing. two is going. Box two is going to be your three hundred and sixty. You get some task level work done before you start your three hundred and sixty, and then you do a three hundred and sixty where you're looking for your problems and you're applying your risk assessment process of value, time, and size. And then that is not done on the radio. That is done on foot. That is getting visuals of all four sides and data collection. You're you're figuring out what do I have. What are my problems and what's the value time size? And then now that you know more than you did when you arrived, you close box two and box three is putting it together. An incident action plan is being put together in your head that you can communicate your size up over the radio at that point and be able to tell people that, look, I know more than when I arrived. This is what we have. This is what we're going to do. And this is what I need from you. And then if, and then, and then you, once you've made that radio report and sized it up, given your action plan, you've closed box three and now we're ready for you to do box four. That, those, right. I think does that I, sound I, like an I accurate? To, yeah. I forgot to mention in box three, you also audible the mode. So you, know, mm, yeah, you start out in the investigation that. mode. In box two, you do your investigation. In box three, uh, that's where I would say uh, we're preparing for offensive from site alpha or if I've got enough resources, I might say offensive, uh, or I might say we're transitional defensive Charlie, offensive from site alpha on floor two. Um, I call that play, and literally mm-hmm. when you when you say offensive from side on floor, that's calling a play. You've told the first four or five companies what to do, which is different than pre-assignments. Some fire departments do pre-assignments where it's a house fire and I'm second engine, I do this. If I'm first ladder truck on a house fire, I do this. If it's multifamily, I do this, which is in violation of state law in Washington. <laughs> and it's, it's also in violation of NIMS, which is a federal mandate, which says all resources have to check in for assignment. Well, saying you're on scene on the radio is not checking in for an assignment. Um, mm. If you were given that assignment before you even got there, size up needs to be based on size up and risk assessment assignments. Uh, yeah. A lot of people don't don't realize in NIMS, again, a federal mandate, it says all resources have to check in for assignment. 
to receive. I'm, I'm thinking of your. I'm thinking of your um, comparison to an NFL coach calling a play. You know, you do your size up, you do your risk assessment, and then you call your play. And that use of from and on is like, to me, in my mind, calling the formation and letting them know where we're going to go. So we're going to line up like this. We're going to line up on the alpha side or we're going to line up on the Charlie side. And we are going to go to this location. We're going, the on part of that is we're going to be moving to floor two because that's where our problem is. Or we're going to be moving to the end zone because that's what we're trying to do. You know, I liked how you said that. That's, that's very good. That's yeah. really good. Okay. Yeah, from so, and on, I, I've always believed from and on, and you just emphasize that also, are the two most important words during a fire ground operation. You use it uh, for operational mode. You never just say we're offensive. You say op- offensive from side on floor. That tells everybody where what side you're going to enter from. And when I say, even without saying where the fire and smoke is, if I say offensive from side out, two-story house, offensive from side alpha on floor two, I've just told people, like when I call a play in the huddle, I don't have to tell each guy what to do. I call the play and I've pre-assigned people within a play. They don't right. run onto the field thinking, well, I'm going to do this because I'm the left guard. They, you call a play and they're assigned. So offensive from side alpha on floor two, the fire's on floor two. Fire attack's going to be on floor two. Primary search is going to be floor two, then floor one. We're going to do salvage on floor one. And if there might be an exposure, we're going to stabilize the exposure. So so really, you've everybody knows ex- pretty much what the play is going to be uh, when you do that. Then I may give assignments based with from and on. Primary search from side alpha on floor two. Fire attack from side alpha on floor two. Salvage from side alpha on floor one. That that from and on is powerfully <laughs> it, it it really helps you achieve tactical accountability by just adding from and on. It's easy to keep keep track of as the IC on your board where they're making entry, where their work location is. As quickly as you can say it, you can get it captured on your board in a standardized way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about before we go to box four is that whole idea of a face-to-face um, assignment. Being given, they hand you the passport, you give them an assignment. Two things about that. One, what do you say about a potential criticism that that slows things down too much? Um, to have everybody coming to the command post instead of going from their apparatus to their assignment. And uh, secondly, um, what was my second part of that? So there was the delay. Let's start with that one and see if I can remember the second part of that question. Sure. What do you, th- uh, what do you say that, about that potential criticism? Um. Well, the reason why we do that in ITAC is, one, to address NIMS, which says you've got to check in for assignment. Uh, that is definitely checking in for assignment. <laughs> you mm-hmm. have to do accountability. Well, you're, you're doing accountability right there. Very easy. The passports aren't very heavy. Uh, and NFPA, in fact, state law, says the same thing, is the incident commander needs to have a, an awareness, is what NFPA 1500 says, of the location and function of all resources. 
And if you're a supervisor, division or group supervisor, the supervisor has to be aware of the uh, location and function of all assigned resources. Well, if there's no division or group supervisor, the incident commander has that responsibility. Uh, if there's no safety officer, the incident commander has that responsibility. So those, just those three things, we could not figure out any other way to comply because ITAC is a standards-based system. We, we've identified, you know, everything is done for a reason uh, in the spirit and intent of addressing standards and mandates. Uh, just, just to reduce liability and because it's a national consensus, this is how things are supposed to be done. And, they, and it makes sense. It actually works. Uh, now you can audible out. You might, have, uh, as the incident commander, for example, at a, a light industrial fire, I, I was the incident commander at. I said, dispatch second alarm. Have second alarm apparatus report to side Charlie, and establish water supply. And then once another chief got there, I signed that chief division Charlie, and I said, did you hear the second alarms reporting back there? They got their establishing water supply, but they're just waiting for you. And here's your Division Charlie status board. Uh, so you can move the chess pieces however you need them. You're not, it's not like, oh, we got to just do it this way. You know, I can audible and say, you know, Engine 3, uh, stabilize exposed, exposure Charlie on your arrival. I don't want them to pass through. I'm just, you know, I'm going to write down who they are and what they're doing, and I'll get yeah. their passport so, later. Okay. It's, yeah, it's, I think it's that's adaptable an important flexible. distinction. Yeah. yeah. So the second part of that that I – initially forgot was what about the, when you're doing face-to-face assignments, what about, is there a way to capture that um, communication over the, over the air so that other people coming in can put the puzzle pieces together to know engine two's going there, engine three's going there, ventilation's been assigned, primary search has been assigned. How do you handle that situation? If you've given a face-to-face, um, Direction. Uh, good question, Rob. Good question. But we in ITEC we have uh, command benchmarks. So, like for example, primary search. The incident commander uh, wants to have anything you want time stamped. Go th- go through dispatch. You know, for your after action report. If somebody says, "Hey, they never searched the the house that was never assigned," you can go to the tape. Hey, right here. You know, I said it, and dispatch repeated. That primary search was assigned and in progress at you know twelve forty one uh, by engine six. Uh, so what would happen? I I face to face make the assignment and I say dispatch uh, main street command primary search in progress uh, alpha two or just in progress. Mm-hmm. And then uh, um, the 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 other benefit of going through dispatch is they repeat it. The dispatcher should repeat it. So if somebody said, "What did he say?" You know, they'll, mm. they'll get the, the repeat by dispatch. Right. Okay. I think we're ready for box four. Ah, okay. So close box three, box four. Now, uh, what we recommend is don't put anything else in a box. Like in box one, for example, if I, if I know I need a second alarm, I'll either ask for it before I open box one or after I close between box one and two. Then I'll ask for the second alarm because it, it – you know, it, it just seems like people push something else out to push something else in and forget it. Mm. So box four uh, is command, uh, command post. So I'm going to establish formal command, name and locate the command post. And I'm going to uh, 
update the operational mode if I need to or continue in whatever that mode is. I'm going to uh, continue to achieve tactical accountability. I'm going to make sure a 10-minute clock has been started by dispatch uh, if, it is, if it isn't done automatically. Two NFPA standards say a 10-minute clock is supposed to start automatic by dispatch. A lot of people don't know that. 1,500 and 1,561. Um, and, uh, and then using that clock, update the uh, value time size periodically or man, manage span of control. So that – now I, I said I name and locate the command post in box four. That's because in box one, we don't name command. The officer says initiating command in the investigation mode. That's because that officer has one foot in engine one responsibility and one foot in command responsibility. Once that, And that officer's wandering around the fire ground doing size up and risk assessment. Once that officer's ready to put both feet in a command post, they'll open box four. So it might be box four is open when the chief gets there. And the uh, first, uh, first officer doesn't do that because the, the chief's right behind him. It's going to op- open box four. Um, so there's some flexibility there. Okay. What? I think that's a good, a good uh, summary of that system, that four-box system. Um, and we've talked a little bit about um, how to learn it, how to teach it. We've talked about training division and uh, looking for content to practice on, even people practicing on their own. Um, and the importance of repetition. Can we talk a little bit about how you've how you've used simulation to support the teaching of the size up process? We we did we used to do instead of computer simulations where you're like in a language lab and you know looking at a computer screen, we had two projectors. Originally, we used slide projectors. And one was uh, two sides of the building, and the, the rear screen was the other two sides. So we maybe we'd have Alpha Bravo on the front. We'd have Charlie Delta on the back. What we wanted is the, the kinesthetic part of an – and we'd have a chair where the officer arrives in the chair looking through the windshield to open box one. Then they get out of the chair, and they have to walk back to, to the rear screen, which is facing the rear of the room. They can't see what's on the screen from the front of the room. They have to actually walk around the screen in the back of the room. So they're kinesthetically actually doing that size up. They're actually having to walk to do that. Um, so that's that's how those work. And we have where you, you click the button and the, the image changes on both screens and it's coordinated. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the value, though, in when we talked a little bit about building that slide tray, right? A lack of experience in actual incidents. What is the value in a simulation as a tool? How well do you think you can use simulation to build those slides in lieu of actual experience? In your experience, is that something that is that works? Is it effective in the classroom to artificially build up that slide experience? Oh, I, I definitely believe so. In fact, uh, I think if you were to ask anybody that is a blue card instructor, they would say the same thing. It's, it's sets and reps uh, mm-hmm. at a strategic level. You know, you do your tactical sets and reps doing hose evolutions, ladder evolutions. These these are, you know, you don't get good at doing hose evolutions unless you do them uh, frequently. 
Same with strategic level stuff using strategic tools. You you only you're only as good as the last time you did it. I like that. Um, what's one actionable piece of advice that a new training officer can use today to help them face the challenge of their new role? And uh, remembering, I mean, we started this whole thing off talking about uh, <laughs> opportunity versus. <laughs> Uh, what was the word that you used? A sentence. You, uh, a sentence. Yes. I know that it's probably not an uncommon situation to walk into the training division with your eyes open pretty wide. And there's a lot of responsibility there. And oftentimes I think you're not staffed the way you need to be staffed to really uh, address the scope, your total scope of responsibility. So for that guy that walks in with his eyes wide open, do you have any words of wisdom for how to get started? Uh, first of all, don't lose sleep, you know, the, for during the first year in the training division, because you're going to go home after work and go, oh my God, there's so many, there's so many things that aren't being addressed here. Uh, take time up front to address, uh, familiar, fam familiarize yourself with NFPA standards. Uh, in particular, firefighter, fire officer, uh, 1500, 1561 for incident management, 1521 for incident safety officer. If you're not an instructor, get certified as an instructor. Any company officers that you're going to use to help teach and provide training, get them certified as instructors. Uh, so you know they can teach. They know how to how to teach to an objective and to test if they need to, uh, to post-test. Um, and then start practicing, you know, firefighting stuff, good place to start making sure people are practicing and assigning drills. Then think about how we're going to prepare fire officers. Uh, do a case study program so people recognize the value of strategy in, in on the fire ground and not just fast attack. That that aggressive strategy is far more important than aggressive tactics. You know, if if the fire service had a proud history and tradition of aggressive strategy, that's at least as proud as aggressive tactics. There'd be a lot of people alive today. <laughs> That should not have died. Uh, Aggressive strategy is more difficult. Oh, far more difficult. Oh, yeah. yeah. Requires poison confidence. And we'll go circle back to what you said. It, it, to take time to, to have the discipline and the confidence to be able to pause in a time of um, stress and urgency, right? That's, that's, that's the natural reaction is to take action. You know, so, and that, that, like we've talked about that poison confidence can only come with time repetition and it's built over time. And one of the things you said in your last answer that I wrote down here that I love, because we've been spending the last half hour talking about size up. And I, then I asked you, what, what does the new training officer do when he goes in? Right. He sizes it up. <laughs> so oh, good, but yeah, I like ha it. have, have the discipline and the confidence to know that you've been handed a very big set of responsibilities and it isn't magic. There's nothing that you likely know on your first day that's going to solve these problems that you've inherited. So take the time to size it up and, and standards, uh, certifications, and learning the importance of aggressive strategy. What better place to start than learn the lessons of the past that we keep having to relearn over and over again? Because if we can learn those up front, we can build a program that addresses those. Yeah. And then you know you're, that's, that's energy and time well spent. You really uh, so nailed I think it, that was Bob. A, that's, 
Well, I think that was a great answer. It really was. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you said what you did there. It helped me see you know, it in a of, new way. One of the things I discovered, one of the, you know, lose sleep things I, I, I noticed is we'd do hose evolution. So we'd, you know, people got sick and tired of doing a forward lay and, uh, you know, take a hydrant, pump, pre-connect, chill water. Then you got to pick up the hose. They got so bored with that. Uh, but I noticed one day we were doing an evolution. And I had a clock on time in this. And there's NFPA standards that actually have hose evolutions and time standards. The NFPA 1401, yeah. I think, or something like that. Anyway, and I noticed, okay, fire, firefighter gets off, loops the hydrant, engine pulls forward, and he starts, you know, takes the stores off, and he starts addressing the hydrant. Engine stops, drives two, 300 feet. The engineer gets out and, you know, chocks primes and gets things going. The, and then who pulls the pre-connect? We had a three-person engine company. The officer. Who pulls the pre-connect? The officer? Turned him into a firefighter? The officer. And I'm watching yeah. this and I go, holy crap, we are turning our fire. I've mentioned this earlier. We are turning our fire officers into firefighters. You know, if they're going to pull the pre-connect, pull it, drop it. Ops, and the engineer charges the line. The firefighter, when he's done, comes back, picks up the nozzle. And th that the officer, we want you to simulate going and doing a thizer. Take the time to go walk around the fire station. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so we're, we're just reinforcing. <laughs> we're not emphasizing fire officer stuff. We're, we're turning fire fire officers yeah. into firefighters. Yeah. I, and that was an epiphany I had this so. Well, that's that's the one of the things I'm taking away from this conversation. I've heard you reference that before in the past, but that's been a theme in this conversation has been the role of an intelligent fireground operation, which is supported by somebody assessing that situation. And when we ask fire officers to uh, take on that task of size up and incident action plan building and then perform all the same task level work as a as a firefighter, it's easy to say it's much harder to do and under the, it's one thing to do it at the drill tower on a sunny day with no smoke and nobody watching. And it's a whole nother thing to add that element of stress and then throw all those task level wow. responsibilities on top of having to lot. make an intelligent assessment. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's, there's a, you know, 1710 says, Four four person companies, right, for full staffing. Mm -hmm. And if you break down the the tasks that need to be accomplished, it's not it's not excessive staffing. It's minimal staffing to have. If we're <laughs> going to have aggressive strategy, right? Yeah. If we're going to take the hose and the tools out of the fire officers' hands so they can do the aggressive strategy part, that fourth person really becomes important. Oh man, yeah. It um, it, it frees the officer to do officer stuff even more. Yeah. That that's what that fourth person does, and it's so important to appreciate that officer stuff is different than firefighter stuff. There's this whole other set of of work that needs to be accomplished, and if we're thinking speed first, that stuff tends to be devalued or or not appreciated the way that it needs to be in order for a a, a um, an intelligent and safe fireground. Um, to circle all the way back, it all starts in recruit school. That firefighting is not an emotional event. Mm -hmm. firefighting should not be emotional. It should not be adrenaline. People should learn what it's supposed to look like and sound like in recruit mm -hmm. school so that they remember that the rest of their career. 
if you, yeah. if you, I've gone to fire departments and, and I've asked people, what does an intelligence safe fire, fire ground operation look like? And they, I've never seen one. Nobody's ever shown me what an intelligent safe fire ground operation from uh, air brake first engine on scene to terminating command post. You know, if you're going to show somebody how to tie a bowling knot, you just don't start teaching. You show them how, what it looks like. Yeah. And then show them step by step before you have them start tying the knot. And then they do it one step at a time, make a loop, do a round turn. Uh, same thing's got to happen strategically on the fire ground. People have to know what it looks like. Let's, let's unpack that word safe for a moment because I think that's a, a, a word that, um, many in the fire service don't appreciate they it's it's in some places i think seem as a contradiction to an aggressive uh firefighting department what does safe mean to you what is a safe fire ground because it's it's obviously an inherently dangerous activity so how yeah. do you how do you apply the word what does it mean to apply the word safe or safety to a inherently dangerous uh, you know where the fire is. You know what the risk is based on value, time, size. You've you've determined whether you should be offensive or defensive. You've determined uh, if you're in rescue mode or transitional or preparing mode, whatever it is. Uh, you, if you're going to do primary search, there's some rules of engagement. If I'm going to send a team up to floor two to search without a hose line because we want to get, they're going to do search and rescue on floor two which is different than primary search, that I'm going to have a hose line protecting their egress between the fire and them on floor two. If the fire's on floor one and they're going to two to search, rule of engagement is there's a hose line between them and the fire at the stairs. Uh, If I'm going to do a rescue of somebody at a balcony with a ground ladder, rule of engagement is hose line between the fire and the occupant. Now, I'm not going to take it up there. But I'm going to be, if it starts venting out the sliding glass door from the ground, I can shoot water through that sliding glass door if I need to. Uh, well, they're putting up the ladder and doing all that. There's just, I'm going to vent away from people. That, mean, that means I got to know where people might be. <laughs> Survivable areas versus areas that aren't. Um, so I'm going to, and it's also away from firefighters. So if we're going to enter from side A, work on floor two, to make it safe, as safe as possible, I'm going to determine how the method I'm going to use and vent away from those firefighters. Uh, positive pressure is it's, a great way to do that. So well, it sounds to me There's a number of ways that, to do that, yeah. Yeah, but what you're describing isn't the elimination of risk. It's simply, it's the intelligent application of tactics to... The management of risk. As much knowledge as we can acquire about where we're at. Exactly. We're accepting yep. risk. We understand that there's risk, but we don't want unnecessary risk, which means kind of like rolling the dice. If you go through front door without doing a size up, that is an aggressive action, but it's an uninformed action. So that's excessive <laughs> risk. I like the way you just said that, an uninformed action. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we talked about, you gave some great advice for that uh, training officer coming in with eyes wide open. The second, this, this other question is related, but, and it may, there may be some overlap, but is there something you had to learn the hard way in your experience that 
that might help someone starting out in the training division? I had a lieutenant, uh, a really competent guy, ended up retired as a battalion chief, but named Tad Weinman. And he was a firefighter, lateraled into uh, the fire department, and he got promoted to lieutenant. And I was in my office as chief of training, and he walked by, and I said, hey, Tad. You know, he was reporting for duty. And I said, hey, Tad, congratulations, you know, your first day as a lieutenant. You know, that's way to go. Good job. And he goes, I I wish I felt really good about this, but he goes, I, nobody prepared me to be a fire officer. And I'm the chief of training. Mm. I go, yikes. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> so so that's where I came up with the idea for the uh, King County Officer Development Academy mm. is, you know, wow. Uh, well, I, I can't do all that as a training officer. And so I got together with the King County training officers and we put together the, uh, in 1995, was the first academy, the six-week Officer Development Academy. And it was a week throughout the year. There'd be a week in March. April and May, and then it would start again, September, October, November. Uh, somebody could get through in a year if they wanted to with all six weeks. And uh, so they had, you know, I teach five days of building construction. Uh, originally, Stuart Rose would do a week of strategy and tactics. Uh, you know, we addressed off 1021 and all the things an officer needed to know. Somebody would come in and teach fire prevention stuff and customer service. And it was so it, it it was really good. It, it, it just some for some reason terminated terminated it a couple of years ago. I think about the time of COVID, but it was very mm. successful. I mean, we were we had two campuses, one in Woodenville, one in Kent, and they were always sold out. Then we got down to one campus, uh, but it was always sold out. It was a really good. As far as we could tell, it was the only officer development academy in the country <laughs> that, that we could find in nineteen ninety five. I think officer development is obviously such an important, but I think under, um, it's so important, but it's not done the way it needs to be done as, as in many places, oftentimes in my experience, um, as evidenced by what you just described right there. But from a training officer's perspective too, there's nothing more helpful than officer development when, when, I, I like to think of every company officer is a training officer. So oh, man. the more the more that you develop your officer core to be an extension of the training division, the more effective everything's going to be organizationally um in on the operation side of things, but also in training. You can get a lot more done as a training officer if you have people that you're working with instead of against or for. You know, if you have to do everything yourself, you're going to be so limited in what you can accomplish. That's why make the, make all your company officers and instructors certified. Yeah. And, and absolutely use them. This has been a great be a requirement to get promoted. I, I agree. I agree. Um, they need additional training if they're going to do uh, live fire. Yes. Correct. Um, teaching. Um, just additional training in general to be an instructor, I think is, is I agree, a, 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 an essential element of being an officer. This has been a great conversation, Mark. And we've talked about benchmarks on a, um, in ITAC, there's, there's um, uh, tactical benchmarks. 
And we've talked about leadership and, and I'm curious how you would describe or what your benchmarks are for measuring your own personal and or professional success. And well, you have I, to be I, more specific than your pyramid because the pyramid's too big. <laughs> well, uh, my, my personal definition of success for a long, long time was John Wooden's definition of success, which success is peace of mind. That's powerful right there. Success is peace of mind. That is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you or I or we make the effort to do the best of which we're capable. That was his definition of success for the players at UCLA. In his last 12 years at UCLA, they won 10 NCAA championships, seven in a row, and their definition of success had nothing to do with sports. His pyramid of success had nothing to do with sports. Um, so for a long time, that was my definition of success. And I, I added to it, I changed it a little bit uh, by adding uh, continuous learning and and some other things. But uh, basically, peace of mind that is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that I make the effort to do the best of which I'm capable. You know, that, you know, you may lose a game, but if you've made the effort to prepare to the best of your ability and played to the best of your ability or came to work as a company officer and did the best, my, the best job I'm capable as a company officer or a firefighter, you can't ask any more than that. I think parents should teach that to their children. Youth sports, the coach should tell the parents, this is our definition of success for this little league or Pop Warner football team. It's got nothing to do with who's first string, second string, winning, losing. It, it's something that your child can take away for the rest of their life as far as what success is. Very, it's very powerful. It's almost mystical that that's what probably the greatest coach, people say the greatest coach in history, uh, that was his definition of success. Pretty remarkable. Well, thank you very much, Mark. As I said, I really enjoyed the conversation and thank you for being with us today. Rob, I appreciate it very much. And uh, anybody that wants a case study, I'll send them the whole package or any other information. Um, and uh, I really appreciate it a lot. I'm honored to have done this. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we'll catch you in the next episode.